4.30, we're going to have dinner on Thursday. And there are some other uh, groups that uh, live stream that are either going to eat before or after, which is great. And then we're going to have Bible class at 6 o'clock. And then we're going to... Um, uh, the next thing is the, the during the next couple of weeks will be Camp Arete, which travel starts with Jeff, I think, Friday. Others are leaving Saturday going up to camp, so uh, be sure to pray for them. And then to be in prayer for... Um, the speakers next, uh, starting next week, starting on Sunday, Mark Perkins, David Roslin, and myself. And uh, pray for safety for the kids. Pray for that they'll be receptive to the teaching of the Word. And that if there are any kids there that are not saved, that they will get a really clear presentation, clear understanding uh, of the gospel. Okay, I think that covers it for announcements. Uh, also, we're looking for some... Uh, uh, church members who can who are interested in either helping out with the Good News Club or teaching in prep school. And I think that's about it. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we all have the uh, opportunity to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together this evening to study your word, to reflect upon uh, the many great and wonderful things that are taught in your word. Father, we recognize that we enter into a new chapter, new section this evening in Acts 17, that as we go into this section, we see the Apostle Paul face two very different circumstances, situations. Uh, first in Thess- Thessalonica, where he continues to face a tremendous amount of antagonism and opposition and second in uh, Varia, uh, where he is met with a receptive audience. And so often this represents the two different uh, responses that we will often get from the gospel, because when we proclaim the truth of your word, there are many who will be set on edge, their teeth will be set on edge, they will be uh, angry, they will be resentful, they will feel like it's uh, judgmental, their arrogance will come into full play, and they will react uh, with various degrees of anger and bitterness and resentment. And then on the other hand, there are those who will respond with the truth and respond to the truth and be receptive to it. And, Father, we pray that in the culture in which we now live, where we are on a negative trajectory towards uh, paganism and continuously we see more and more hostility, resentment to your word, we pray that you would uh, give us as believers uh, wisdom, patience, a perseverance, recognition that we're no longer living in the world in which we grew up, but we're living in a very different culture, a very different society, one that is more like the uh, getting a reception like in Philippi or in Thessalonica rather than one in Berea. And, Father, nevertheless, we need to be like Paul. We need to be faithful. We need to persevere, and we need to continuously maintain our stand for the truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you will, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and we're going to see if um, how we do. I was going to use my notes out of my uh, iPad tonight, and unfortunately, when I brought that up, it won't recognize my notes. So that's okay. I've got most of it embedded in the uh, PowerPoint. What we see, as I pointed out in the prayer... As we come to the next section in Acts 17, 1 through 15, and I'll cover most of this tonight, is uh, because most of it is simply descriptive narrative. There's very little there that focuses on 
Paul's teaching. There's not a lot of uh, content there. There are some critical things, though, that we should observe as we go through these 15 verses. But what we do see is that there is a contrast between the reception that Paul has in Thessalonica uh, which continues to be hostile. When he was in Philippi, uh, there was a tremendous amount of uh, hostility, and he left there. And these Jews eventually follow him to Thessalonica, and their self-righteous arrogance and self-righteousness always breeds er- an arrogant type of reaction. And their self-righteous arrogance, they continue to stir up trouble. What makes an interesting study is to see the different words that the Apostle Paul uses to describe the different ways in which uh, hostility develops uh, within his audience. But we see that there's an opposition there, and that's contrasted when we come to uh, verses 10 through 15, which talks about Paul's uh, the response to Paul's ministry in Berea. When Paul comes into Berea, there is a very positive response. He goes to the same methodology as he had in Thessalonica and Philippi. Uh, Philippi didn't have a synagogue, but he, but he went to some God-fearers who were meeting with uh, uh, Lydia. And then in, uh, in, in Thessalonica, he does go to the synagogue. But there's a tremendous negative reaction from among the Jews. Now, I think there's a great application here for us because as we watch what's been going on in our culture, in the United States of America and in Western civilization as a whole, we have been on a negative trajectory in regards to the gospel and the scriptures since the mid-19th century. Now, a lot of you wouldn't put it that far back, but that's actually when you had the major shift that occurred within a lot of the academic institutions in the United States. And it takes a while for ideas to filter down to where they become normative thinking by the man, uh, the everyday person, the everyday blue-collar worker, uh, thinks today like an existential nihilist, a postmodernist, but he has no idea what those words mean. But yet that, but these ideas have filtered down. He believes in evolution, uh, not the vast majority of Americans, but they believe in some form of evolution and they believe in a lot of ideas and values that are the result of evolutionary thinking, even though they may not connect the dots and see that. They've been influenced by uh, Marxist-Leninist thinking, which is uh, grounded on a naturalistic uh, worldview that doesn't uh, see God as being uh, overseeing the history of mankind. Uh, they don't see man as being created in the image and likeness of God. Uh, they have views that are generally acceptive of uh, human psychological theory that have been developed from Freud, again, in the mid to late 19th century. And they operate on a lot of assumptions and views in terms of sort of pop culture that have come out of the developments of 19th century sociological thinking from people like uh, Herbert Spencer and August Comte and some others. And yet today, even though people may never have heard of these these names, they are thinking in terms of those people. Uh, they may not know uh, who Jacques Derrida is, uh, one of the founders of postmodern thinking, but yet they think in terms of pure moral relativism. And so when, especially when we look at the generation that is now coming of age, the uh, they were the ones referred to as uh, millennials, the one who came, the ones who came of age in the last uh, 15 years or so, came into adulthood. And the studies show that among this generation, uh, specifically in reference to the Supreme Court decision last week with the overturning of key provision, a key provision in the Defense of Marriage Act, uh, the issue of uh, homosexual marriage and recognition and acceptance of uh, homosexual marriage is is a major issue with that gener- that generation in in terms of acceptance they view any sort of criticism of that as simply being judgmentalism uh, there there are major attitude differences between those over 40 and those under 40 in terms of how they view uh, marriage and that has a lot to do with how they view sexuality and how they view sexual morals 
and it reflects a major, major shift. Well, these things are evident in uh, the mainstream of culture through the decision makers that we elect uh, to Congress, the congressional representatives, uh, senators, uh, state representatives reflect the mores of the of the culture, the values of the everyday citizen, even though I believe that in this co- country there are still probably a majority of people in this country who hold to some form of con- uh, moderate conservative beliefs and values. They're either not showing up at the polls to vote. They don't register to vote. Studies have indicated that that a large percentage of evangelicals in this country didn't even register to vote in the last election, much less show up to vote. And so their voice is not heard. When their voice is not heard, then the culture takes a default position and slides ever more uh, speedily into uh, the morass of moral relativism. And as we get sucked down into that quicksand of uh, secularism, uh, immorality, moral relativism, then it just becomes harder and harder to extricate ourselves until we reach a point of no return. Now, there are some people today who believe that we reached a, have reached a point of no return and that there's, there is no way that this country will ever turn itself back. It has completely failed uh, the test of prosperity, and no culture that has failed the test of prosperity has ever recovered. I think there are some examples in history where cultures have reversed themselves. I think this happened in, in British history two or three times. I think it happened in the, in the Old Testament period. We see the episode where God had pronounced a judgment on Assyria. He sent uh, Jonah to uh, proclaim and announce God's judgment upon uh, Assyria and upon Nineveh. And the people responded to that uh, announcement and turned to God. And God gave them another 200 years. So it's not impossible, but it is normally not likely. And this puts us as believers in a very different circumstance than we were in uh, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years ago. This means you have to think differently, I think, about your country. You have to think differently about the Constitution. You have to think differently about your role as a Christian within this culture because we live now as as a minority uh, in this culture in terms of what we believe. I think there's a lot of frustration. I'll talk a little bit more about this on uh, Thursday night, but it happens to fit the, the context we're in in Acts 17. I think that uh, I increasingly hear people uh, call in, call, people calling in on talk shows, uh, people I talk to on the phone who have felt like with a series of Supreme Court decisions over the last 20 or 30 years, opinions that were mainstream, normative, American, patriotic American views 50 years ago have basically been rendered unconstitutional today. That, that many evangelical Christians, uh, mostly white evangelical Christians, have basically had their opinions declared unconstitutional over the last 20 to 30 years. This leads to a tremendous amount of frustration, but we have to recognize that there was never a guarantee that this country would stay the course that it once had. And so this means that we have to change our viewpoint. We now function not much differently from the Apostle Paul and the early Christians did within the pagan environment of a Greco-Roman culture. And so we have to think about our relationship to the culture in ways that are more like those of of the Bible. We, We are in a hostile environment, and we need to wake up and realize that. Now, that doesn't mean we react in anger, we react in bitterness or revolution or any of the things I hear some people say out of frustration and anger, but that we have to deal with the culture and grace, and we have to work ever more diligently to make sure that we are shining as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. We see how Paul handles the adversity of of ministering in the midst of persecution and opposition in this chapter. We see both sides, a positive response in verses 10 to 15 and the negative response when he's in Thessalonica. Now, we're on the second missionary journey. Uh, Paul uh, went across... uh, 
what is now modern Turkey, but at that point was um, uh, the Roman provinces of Asia and Galatia, Bithynia and Pontus, and uh, the Holy Spirit directed his path across to the to the west to Troas, and from Troas he took a ship as uh, in response to a vision that God gave him to come to Macedonia, took the ship going by Samothrace, landing at Neapolis, going to uh, Philippi. He had a ministry in Philippi where he is uh, he he cast a demon out of the girl, the slave girl who was a fortune teller, and because of that, it impacted the wallet of her owners. And because of that, there was a strong negative response, and he was accused of going against the culture and, and the norms of, of Rome. Now, this is the same kinds of things that we're going to hear as Christians. We are, uh, we will be accused of not being very Christian, not being very loving. You already hear this. We've heard it for a long time. Uh, we are not accepting. We're intolerant. A huge number of false charges are presented. Yet what we see is the Apostle Paul does not necessarily respond to the details of the false charges as much as he responds by clearly articulating his message. Uh, from Philippi, he had to leave, and he goes by uh, way of uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia as to Thessalonica. This is uh, Acts 17.1. Now, when I'm gone uh, in the next couple of weeks on Tuesday night and Thursday night, Bible class will be on First Thessalonians. And this is a tremendous epistle. We'll go through First and then Second Thessalonians, a good bit of which has to do with, with understanding prophecy. These are some of the most uh, uh, prophetic books in terms of eschatology uh, from the pen of the Apostle Paul. And so it's obvious that during his probably two or three months in Thessalonica, he taught more than just basic doctrine in terms of salvation. He went into eschatology, he went into God's plan for the ages, and he went into various details related to personal eschatology, which is what happens to a person when they die and what God's plan for the future is for each individual after death. So we're told in 17.1, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, uh, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, Thessalonica is a major city. There were four uh, uh, provinces, or four divisions, rather, districts in Macedonia, and uh, Thessalonica is the largest city. It's the most significant city. It is a harbor town. And therefore, and it sits on the Via Ignatia, the Ignatian Highway, which is the major uh, east-west route that you see on the map indicated by the yellow line. And it is a, because it is situated near uh, this particular river going up into the Balkans, it is, has a strategic location. And it is a uh, seat of uh, much of Rome, of the Roman governor. And so there's a strong Roman presence in Thessalonica. Today we have uh, some insights. Here's a picture looking out onto the harbor from modern Thessalonica. You can see some of the uh, archaeological uh, ruins on the left. Uh, there's not a lot that's been uncovered in ancient Thessalonica simply because it is still a major thriving uh, modern city. And because of that, most of ancient uh, Thessalonica is underneath the modern buildings, as you see here. But in uh, doing some uh, excavation back in the early part of the, uh, uh, or back in the mid part of the 20th century, there was a bus station that was moved. And when they moved it, they discovered uh, the forum uh, for uh, ancient Thessalonica underneath the, what had been the bus station. So there was a large excavation that took place uh, there, and they discovered a an inscription dated to a period from uh, roughly uh, the first century from on one of the gates there that was uh, uh, indicated some of the the historical significance of the city. So this just gives you a little bit of the of the uh, perspective on the, these ruins from the time of the Apostle Paul. We're told in Acts 17, verse 2, that Paul, as his custom was, 
went to went to them, went to the synagogue of the Jews, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, one of the important doctrines that we see and are illustrated in this story has to do with the Apostle Paul's uh, presentation of the gospel and his teaching from Scripture. We see that in the uh, book of Acts, Luke uses a variety of different uh, different synonyms in order to uh, relate what the apostle what the apostles did with the scriptures. We have words such as uh, keruso, which simply means that they proclaimed the gospel. We have another word that we've studied, evangelizo, which means that they gave the good news. We have another word, katangelo, uh, which means that they announced. It has more to do with announcing something. But here we have another word. This is the word to reason, uh, di, uh, dialegomai. Uh, dialegomai, we've seen it before in Romans 1 and other places in different forms of the word, the noun form, but this is a verb form, dialegomai, where we get our word dialogue. And it has to do, do I mean, the usage at the time was to dispute something, to discuss something, to ponder, reflect, think upon something, to consider, or to reason. It has to do, in many cases, in, in this kind of a context where he's reasoning with them, that he is presenting a logical, rational defense of his position that Jesus is the Messiah. He is doing apologetics. That's what that word means over in First um, Peter 3.15. It means to make a defense, to present a logically constructed, rational case for the gospel, that Jesus is the promised, predicted Messiah of the Old Testament. And so this is what he is doing. He has a well-structured argument where he's going into the Old Testament in order to demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth fits the criteria of the prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, I've pointed out to you in the past in other studies that one of the trends today uh, in evangelical scholarship is to deny uh, that there's very much, old, uh, very much messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. And that causes us to wonder just ex if there's only one there. A lot of these scholars will say, well, there's only one. And, and these aren't liberals. These are allegedly conservative evangelical scholars. Uh, in fact, there's, uh, to my knowledge, there's only one professor in the Old Testament department at Dallas Seminary that takes a strong position on the existence of messianic prophecies in the Old Old Testament. Last year, I was talking with uh, Michael Rydelnik, who I've known uh, for a few years because of, he's also associated with pre-trib. He's the head of the uh, Judaic Studies Department at uh, Moody Bible Institute. He came up through, I think it was Chosen People Ministries, and then after seminary for a while, he worked with Ariel Ministries, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's organization, and then he uh, went on pursued his Ph.D., and ended up teaching at Moody Bible Institute. And he's written a classical book. It's pretty technical in the Hebrew, but even if you don't know Hebrew, you're going to get some insights out of it, called Messianic Hope. And as I've discussed this book with him and heard some lectures that he's given, he points out that one of the reasons he majored in Greek instead of Hebrew at Dallas Seminary was because uh, nobody at the, uh, um, at the uh, Hebrew department uh, at the time he went through Dallas, which was about the time, a little bit after I was there, we overlapped about a year, that nobody in the Old Testament department believed in uh, messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. So this isn't really something new. I was just focused on other issues, and even though I was a Hebrew major in the Old Testament, that just kind of went right past me, as a number of other issues tend to do with seminary students tend to focus on different things, and you're not always honed in on some of the different issues that happen there. But uh, this is not something that's that's brand new. So what in the world did Jesus talk to the two disciples about on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke? In Luke 24, when he appears after the resurrection to the two men on the road to Emmaus, and he goes through the scriptures, uh, the Old Testament scriptures, showing how Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies related to uh, related to the Messiah. 
if there's only one possible messianic prophecy, which is Psalm 110, Jesus had a very short conversation with them. But that's not the impression you get from the text. It's not the impression you get from the Apostle Paul either. So he is going through the Old Testament scriptures, and he presents a logical case. Now, you would be making a mistake if you, as a as a non-professional clergy type, came to the conclusion, well, that's great for Paul, that's great for Robbie, but, but what do I do? Well, what you do is you listen to what you're taught, and you master these same arguments. You don't have to have a lot. We're talking about some of the passages on Thursday night in the Roman series that relate to uh, Old Testament prophecies about the deity of Christ. And it's important to just be able to know three or four. We've gone through Isaiah 53. We've gone through other passages that you need to understand. So you can present a case from the Scripture, which is how Paul did it. It is a well-reasoned, logically structured case. Now, we see the use of this word actually several times in relation to the Apostle Paul. And I want you to notice this. And notice the context of all, all the phrases which this is used. Acts uh, 17.2, the verse that we're looking at, he reasoned with them, with who? With the Jews in the synagogue. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Acts 17.17, 17, this is when he goes to Berea. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. Acts 18.4, when he gets down to uh, uh, Corinth, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Acts eighteen nineteen, he came to Ephesus, went to the synagogue, and reasoned with the Jews. Acts nineteen eight, uh, he's re- he's going to the synagogue for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Acts nineteen nine, when he is teaching his uh, students in this seminary that he set up at the school of Tyrannus in, um, in uh, uh, Ephesus, he's reasoning daily. So this is not just the word uh, dialigomai is not just used in relation to explaining and defending the gospel. It's used in explaining and defending doctrine to disciples, to his students, to prepare them to go out to be pastors and evangelists throughout the uh, Roman uh, province of Asia. So this is a key thing. This is something we're to do. This is the, the one of the ways in which a pastor taught the word, presenting a logical case and going through it step by step. It wasn't. Th- these are not emotive terms. He's not just giving a motivational message. He's not just getting people all fired up emotionally. He is presenting a logical, uh, uh, rationally constructed case for what the Scripture teaches. This is further developed in verse 3 where it says that um, completing the clause, he says he reasoned, that's your primary verb, he reasoned. How did he reason? By explaining and giving evidence. These two uh, words that are used at the beginning of verse 3 are participles that describe how he reasoned. He reasoned by explaining and by giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer. Well, where did he get evidence that the Christ had to suffer? Suffer. He went to passages like Psalm 22 in the Old Testament. He went to passages like Isaiah 53. He went to passages like Zechariah chapter 12 when the Jews looked upon him whom they had pierced. He goes to these Old Testament passages that demonstrate that the Messiah had to suffer. And this was probably a great uh, eye-opener for his audience because at this time in, in history, in Judaism, they believed that the Messiah was more of a political deliverer than one who would come to suffer. And so he's opening the scripture to them literally. This is the word explaining. It's the word dianoiga, dianoigo in the Greek, which literally means to open something up or to reveal or expose something. Uh, it is used in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint of the Old Testament, to translate the Hebrew word patach, which means to open something. A variation of that word patach 
was uh, was used is used to refer to the naive or the simple one in uh, in Proverbs. You know, I've, I've pointed that out several times that the naive one comes from this uh, noun patach, which is uh, derived from this verb, and it means someone who's literally open to any idea. He's he can't think critically or discerning. He's just open to any any kind of influence. So that's the basic meaning of the word patach in the Hebrew. So this word dianoigo indicates uh, opening something up, uh, exposing it, uh, developing or explaining, and so that becomes the idiom. The second word, demonstrating, is the Greek word paratithemi, which means to set something before someone. It's used numerous times to refer to somebody preparing the table for dinner. You're setting or you're laying everything out for someone so that they can then use it. So in, in terms of his his reasoning of the scriptures, he's doing two things. He's opening up the scriptures and exposing what the scripture teaches, and he's laying it out in front of his audience so they can clearly see what the scripture teaches. These are not terms that describe some sort of emotional, uh, motivational speech. It, it is describing rational uh, discourse, instruction. So he's demonstrating to them, showing them from the Old Testament that, first of all, that Christ had to suffer, and second, that he had to rise again from the dead. Now, what's interesting is, as I've looked at a couple of passages or different commentaries on this, one of whom is written by a New Testament prophet, Dallas Seminary, uh, and he he does a good job. He is he is has written. Uh, extensively on messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, so he's not one of those who does not uh, does not take that position. But what's interesting is when he comes to this passage in his detailed analytical commentary on Acts, uh, where when he gives uh, corollary verses for cr- that Christ had to suffer and Christ had to rise again from the dead, he didn't give a single Old Testament reference. I thought that was kind of ironic, because uh, that's what we're talking about. Most of the other, the New Testament passages, uh, the gospel passages, uh, outside of Luke, and maybe Matthew had not, the John and Mark probably had not been written uh, at this particular time. But Paul is pointing out Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and this is from Old Testament passages, And then Paul said, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And the word that he uses there for preach is the word uh, katangelo. Uh, Katangelo, that he is showing that this is the, uh, the, he is proclaiming this, and he's making it clear that Jesus is the Messiah and the way you know it is because you see it unfolded in the Old Testament prophecies. There's over a hundred Old Testament prophecies that were literally fulfilled at the first advent of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is going through these verse by verse, chapter by chapter, showing his uh, audience in the synagogue that the Messiah has indeed come. This is what Peter refers to in 1 Peter 3.15 when he says that we're to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, that is, uh, setting God apart in our minds mentally, and always be ready to give a defense. That's the term uh, apologia, which is the term where we get our word apologetics. It doesn't mean to apologize. It's a legal term for presenting a legal, rational defense of your thesis or your position, whatever it is that you are arguing for. In this case, it is that Jesus is the Messiah. Being able to give evidence for why you believe what you believe. And so this is given as a mandate by Peter for all believers, is that we're to always be ready to explain the gospel and to defend why we believe it. There are a lot of people who believe in drive-by evangelism. And they they get a hold of a verse like Acts 16.31, and they go to somebody and they say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you, sh- you shall be saved. And they go home and they're so satisfied that they were able to witness to somebody. 
And all they did was they threw a gospel brick at him or shot him with a gospel gun. You know, they didn't give any explanation whatsoever. They didn't listen to the a person's questions or uh, criticisms. They just threw it out at him uh, without any kind of discourse. And what Paul is doing here is having discourse. In the synagogue, often they would debate what uh, visiting rabbis would have to say. And there would be this ongoing discourse. It wasn't simply a monologue. So Paul is presenting a logical case and defending his position, just as Peter says uh, we all should in 1 Peter 3.15. The result that we read about in Acts 17.4 is that uh, some were persuaded. This is a word in the Greek that's related somewhat to the word faith. It's the word patho. And it indicates that somebody listens to the evidence, becomes convinced of the evidence, and then as a result of being convinced that the evidence is correct, they believe. And so some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks. So the devout Greeks refers to the fact that there's a large number of uh, proselytes. They're either full proselytes or they're just uh, God-fearers. We've gone through the different degrees of uh, three or four different degrees of Gentile involvement in Judaism. And recently I've been doing some additional reading and studying in the history of, uh, of Judaism in the first century, trying to get a better handle on the Jewish background for the Gospels. I'm hoping to start a series on the life of Christ or just maybe just the life of Christ through the lens of Matthew sometime in the fall. And so I'm spending a lot of time right now doing background reading. And as I was reading through one one source, he has three or four pages explaining how how uh, during the, from about 50 B.C. up until about 50 A.D. and maybe even a little bit beyond, uh, there was a tremendous amount of curiosity in the Greco-Roman Empire, in the Greco-Roman world, about Judaism and the Jewish God. And so in many times, synagogues had more uh, Gentile God-fearers in them than they did Jews. Uh, they, they didn't go all the way to full submission to the Mosaic Law for reasons we've discussed related to circumcision and other things, but they certainly were uh, at least partially committed in studying the Old Testament seeking God and evidence of their positive volition. And so this is one evidence of that, that in the synagogue at Thessaloniki, because there at this point Paul hasn't gone out into the Agora with the gospel. He's just explaining it. He's going to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. And as he's explaining this in the context of the synagogue, a great multitude of the Gentile, Gentiles there believe and respond positive to, to the gospel, including uh, several of the leading women. These would be wives of some of the uh, major uh, political, civil, civic leaders in Thessalonica. And they joined with Paul and Silas. And apparently after three weeks in the synagogue, enough of an opposition developed so that they began to meet uh, apart from the synagogue. And so they, they're they joining up with Paul as a word proskleirao from the uh, verb kleirao, uh, meaning to call. And it's that idea of call together, and it comes to mean joining together in the church. Ecclesia, the ecclesia the part, also derives from this word kleirao. You can hear the clay, that K-L-A sound in the uh, in the center of the word is is the 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 root uh, the root consonant um, or the root uh, morpheme there indicating it's the same word. But this has the idea of their unity in the body of Christ. This is an indication there of that unity. Notice it is an aorist passive indicative. The passive indicates that they don't perform the action, but they receive the action. And this suggests that what Luke is indicating here is that as they believed, God is uniting the believers together in the body of Christ. And so that would come across by the passive use uh, of this particular verb. Now, in Acts 17.5, we see the contrast, the reaction. 
the hostility that comes from the people who are self-righteous, who are set in their own ways, who would rather follow tradition, who would rather follow human autonomous reason, or who would rather follow autonomous human experience. In this case, it is the Jews who would rather follow their uh, the traditions of their fathers, the, the teaching that had developed uh, after Ezra in the development of rabbinical theology in the Second Temple period, and these these Jews were not persuaded, and it seems to be a large majority of the Jews in the uh, in, in the uh, synagogue, the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, and that envy is part of the motivation, uh, lust motivation of the sin nature. They desire something that they don't have. Uh, thinking that uh, it will make them happy. So it's part of the early stages of a frantic search for happiness. They become envious or jealous that the Apostle Paul is drawing people away uh, from their synagogue. So it's a matter of pride and it's a matter of their uh, losing face, as it were. And so they become envious and they begin to stir up the masses, the the uh, the, the lowlifes who... Uh, inhabit the uh, edges of the marketplace. So they become uh, jealous, actually, uh, not zealous as some some translations have it, more along the lines of jealous of the response that people are giving to the Apostle Paul rather than their own rabbi. And as a result, they go out to get evil men from the marketplace. And here we have the word uh, agorias, which is a word meaning men who belong to the marketplace. They were ne'er-do-wells. They were sort of the homeless drifters who hung out around the, uh, around the agora seeking maybe opportunities to swindle people or to cheat people. But these are the lowlifes in the marketplace, and so they're going to get them stirred up against Paul and Timothy and Silas. So as a result, they gather together a mob and this mob, as a result, they set all the city in an uproar. Now, set in an uproar is the same verb. This is uh, thorubeo here, meaning to stir up trouble or to cause trouble. They basically foment a riot. And uh, as a result of this, with all of the um, fact that they've brought all of this disturbance into the uh, into the agora, into the marketplace, and then they rouse them up, and they're going to attack the house of this uh, of Jason. Now, there's a Jason mentioned in, in uh, Romans 16 that Paul mentions, but it's not at all sure it's the same Jason. It was not an uncommon name in the uh, in the first century, but this is the name of one of the Jewish leaders of the synagogue who had. Uh, who had responded to the gospel, and this is where Paul and Silas and Timothy have been staying. So the mob then surrounds the house, attacks the house, and they're trying to bring the, the uh, uh, Paul and, and T- Timothy and Silas out to the people. Now this word people here is the word demos. It's the first part of the word we get, uh, where we get our word democracy, and it simply refers to the people. Now, what's interesting is this word had a couple of different nuances in Greek, depending on how uh, how it's used in the context. In some contexts, it has to do with the mob, and so, you know, that often I've heard people say democracy is nothing but mob rule. Uh, in another context, it referred to the leaders of the people. And it's a little uncertain here because it could go either way. You do have a mob that's gathered in this chapter that is uh, surrounding the house of Jason. But when they do find Paul and Silas and Timothy, uh, or actually they don't find them, they instead they get Jason and some of the other believers and they drag them out to the rulers of the city. This could be the demos because you see what they wanted to do in Acts uh, 17.5 is to take them out to the people. This could be the rulers of the people, and that's in effect what they do with Jason and the other brethren is they bring them before the civic leaders and before the judges in the city in order to uh, uh, have a judicial ruling against them. So they bring them to the rulers of the city and, and, and bring a false charge against them. 
How many times have we seen misrepresentations of the conservative Christian position by the secular media? Because very few people's polls have shown very few in the secular media uh, are religious in any broad sense of the term. They don't go to church. They, they don't have respect for religious opinions or beliefs. And uh, fewer than 80%, I think I've seen 80 or 85%, uh, attend any kind of, of worship service. So they don't really, the media and people in the media do not reflect the norms and the standards of many Americans. Uh, so uh, they often present a distorted picture because they don't understand what it is that they're talking about. It's foreign to them. It's like Christians are from another another planet. Anyone who's religious, whether you're talking about Christians, whether you're talking about uh, religiously observant Jews or Mormons, as far as most members of the media are concerned, anybody who's religious or believes in God is, is from, a, from another planet. And so we're often caricatured and misrepresented. They don't understand terminology. They don't understand the heartbeat uh, of, of Christians. And in many cases, also on the other side of it, many Christians don't understand Christianity and misrepresent themselves. So that just adds to the confusion. And so here we have uh, these these uh, uh, an opposition bringing Jason and some of the other believers before the rulers, and they say, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. So they make this accusation. They've heard rumors apparently about uh, things that the Apostle Paul has taught in Philippi, maybe even have heard some things from uh, the Jews back in Asia Minor, in, uh, in Iconium, in Pisidian Antioch, in Lystra, where there were riots uh, against the Apostle Paul and attempts to take his life. Maybe they've heard some of those rumors, and so they're making this claim that, that these are really revolutionaries, and they're seeking to overturn Rome and o- overturn uh, political order and stability. They use the term here, uh, anastatao, and anastatao has the basic idea in Greek of agitating, uh, subverting, or overthrowing. They're calling them rebels. They're they're agitators. They're they're like union thugs who are coming in here to uh, overturn the stability of Rome, and they're really uh, secretly hostile to the emperor and to emperor worship and to the power of Rome. Now, Paul refers to this in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, and we get a glimpse into the kind of opposition that the believers in in, uh, Thessalonica uh, had gone through. Paul reminds them in 1 Thessalonians 2.14-16, he says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. Notice the pattern is, Initially, the church started in Judea. Remember Acts 1a to Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And here he says, uh, you, you imitated the churches in Judea, for you also suffered the same things from your countrymen. So the analogy is that just as the Christians in Judea had faced opposition and persecution from uh, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so too these in in uh, Thessalonica were facing opposition uh, from their own countrymen and from their those who who were uh, fellow Jews. Uh, verse uh, fifteen says that they killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. So in 1 Thessalonians, Paul puts the the opponents in Thessalonica in the same stream as the uh, religious legalists uh, at the time of Christ and the idolaters from the Old Testament who persecuted and killed the prophets and persecuted and killed the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, They killed both the Lord Jesus Christ, their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not... Uh, please God and are contrary to all men. But see, what is it that the, that, that the message from the uh, rabble rousers is? That what Paul and Silas and Timothy are doing is overturning the whole world. 
But what Paul says is what they were actually doing was uh, something that was contrary to all men and forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So it's obvious that this opposition is coming from the Jewish leadership and the Jewish community at the synagogue prohibiting them from preaching the gospel to the Gentiles for their salvation. So this is typical of Paul's opposition. Now, verse 7 we read, Jason has welcomed them. They go on with their indictment of Paul. Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Now, here's the heart of their accusation. They're political subversives. They're really rebelling against the authority of Caesar, and this would make them guilty of treason and make it a death penalty. So they're raising uh, that specter before the judges in, in Thessalonica. They all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, where did we see that? We saw that's the same kind of claim that the Pharisees and the Sadducees brought against Jesus at the time of the crucifixion, claiming that he claimed to be king in opposition to Caesar in Rome and that this was a treasonous act and therefore he was uh, worthy of the death penalty. So they're repeating the same uh, same lie of, uh, of the uh, Sanhedrin back in Jerusalem. And then verse 8 says, And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So the word here for troubled is terasso. Another word, uh, Luke uses five or six different words that give us uh, a sense of how he is uh, stirring everyone up, causing trouble, the dissension, the uh, antagonism that comes from the crowd. So uh, these leaders of the Jewish synagogue are troubling the crowd, and this troubles the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard uh, heard these things. And so they have to figure out, puts them on a spot, they have to figure out what they had done. And so they took a bond, basically, from uh, Jason and the rest, and then they let him go. Well, this has really disturbed the peace in Thessalonica, which uh, uh, had a population estimates run between about fifty to 100,000 uh, in the first century. And so now they've caused quite a tumult. Paul's probably been there not just the three Sundays where it says he reasoned in the synagogue, but most scholars believe probably three or four months because of all that he did teach there, uh, as indicated by First Thessalonians. So what happens? The brethren immediately uh, sent Paul and Silas away. There's no mention of Timothy here. Uh, but it's just, Timothy does show up in Berea, so they probably just uh, not listed here for sake of brevity. They sent Paul and Silas away by night to uh, Berea, as it's usually pronounced in English, or very as it's pronounced in Greek. Uh, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So again, Paul follows the same procedure that he's followed in, at, at other places. Now, he doesn't let the fact that he's getting opposition from the Jews stop him. How many times do we think, well, I just don't want to put up with a lot of resistance, antagonism, hostility. I don't want people getting upset, so I'll wait till a better, more appropriate time to give the gospel. Uh, Paul doesn't do that. Paul knows that his mission is to give the gospel. That's the mission of every single believer. That doesn't mean we do it in an in-your-face antagonistic manner, but when we're proclaiming the truth, many times it will be taken as an in-your-face antagonistic assault. Simply because uh, we're addressing someone who is negative, they're in arrogance, we're confirming them in their sins by proclaiming the gospel, we're exposing uh, the idolatry of their soul, and they don't want that exposed. We are pulling back the curtain on their suppression of truth and unrighteousness, and they react in anger and hostility. And so that doesn't slow Paul down one little bit. His faith is in the Lord, and he that's his courage. He's not seeking uh, confrontation, but he's not avoiding confrontation on the basis of the gospel. Now, here he gets a very different response. We're told they were more fair-minded or noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. The indication here is that they have a level of objectivity. 
They are positive. The the, uh, synagogue here apparently had more positive believers in that they were more interested in the things, truly interested in the things of God rather than the things of religion. And when they heard the gospel, it challenged them. And so uh, Luke says that they were uh, uh, fair-minded. This word, uh, uh, eugenes, uh, where we get the idea of high or noble birth, it has to do with, uh, it's used uh, metaphorically for a mental attitude. And they, uh, and they received the word with all readiness and searched the scripture. Now it's interesting the words that, that are used here because uh, when it says they received the word with all readiness, that indicates a, a true excitement and openness to what Paul said. They're enthusiastic about the message, and they search the scriptures. That's the word anacrino there, which means to examine something in detail. It's the idea of the, a word that's usually used in a legal investigation, not unlike the word apologia. It has to do with that investigation of the facts and the details of the argument. We see it in certain other uh, verses, such as Acts 24, 8. Uh, Paul was uh, is talking, commanding his accusers to come to you by examining him yourself. You may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. Uh, and so this is talking about the uh, arrest of the Apostle Paul and the need uh, for Paul to be examined before uh, the court of the uh, proconsul. Acts 28.18, Paul talks about who, when they had examined me, talks about the result of his being examined before uh, the, the, the procurator. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, it's used of the study of God's word. The natural man or the unsaved man or soulish man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually examined. In other words, that that spiritual there refers to uh, being regenerated, and it has the idea that a regenerate person, in contrast to the unsaved person, cannot truly examine the Scripture to get at the spiritual truth that is there. So there is a um, there's a willingness and an eagerness to accept the Word. They search the Scriptures daily. Now, these are unbelievers initially, but they hear the claim of Paul, and they hear him present a logical case from the Old Testament. They go home, and they they don't just take his word for it. They search the Scriptures. They're going to dig into the Scriptures themselves to make sure that he is accurately handling the word. This is a great verse that every believer ought to take to heart. You don't take, you don't just believe the pastor because, oh, well, he went to a certain seminary, or he's got a certain degree, he's smarter than I am. Uh, every believer in a congregation should be, if they've been a believer for any length of time, should be equipped well enough in the scriptures to be able to, uh, keep check on a pastor from going out of bounds doctrinally. Uh, the fact that we live in a world today where that doesn't happen just as another indictment of the modern church. A hundred years ago, if I had a church of this size, chances are I would have 10 or 15 men in the congregation who could sight-read their Greek New Testament along with what I was teaching from the pulpit. Think about that. Now, I don't know that there's anyone in here who can even use uh, some of the tools to double-check what I teach from the pulpit. And so this just shows how things have changed. We, we've dumbed things down so much. There used to be a high calling for every believer to, be, uh, to accurately handle the Word and to be adept in the Scriptures. So they, in Berea, they searched the Scriptures daily to find out if what the Apostle Paul taught was true. The result is that many of them believed. Uh, many of them includes Jew and Gentile. There was a tremendous response from the synagogue in Berea and also not a few of the Greeks. So primarily many of the Jews believed and uh, as well as a good number of the Greeks, including their prominent women as well as men. But what happens? Well, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned uh, that the word of God was uh, preached, and here it's the word uh, keruso to proclaim it, uh, when the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. They want to cause more trouble. 
Immediately, in order to avoid the kind of conflict they had had in Thessalonica, the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. He would go by way of the sea instead of uh, overland to Athens. But Silas and Timothy remained there. And apparently Paul was the real lightning rod for the opposition because of his previous training. I guess they thought he thought of him as a traitor. And so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And then when Paul reached Athens, he sent word back uh, to have Silas and Timothy come to join him. Now what we learn elsewhere, Silas and Timothy had gone back to Thessalonica, and then they eventually will join Paul in Corinth, bringing word of some uh, questions and misunderstandings, things of that nature from Thessalonica. And that's when Paul writes the first epistle uh, to the Thessalonians. And that is, uh, that's the background on First Thessalonians. Now next time, which will be in about three weeks after I return from uh, the trip to Colorado, uh, after you get through the first four lessons in First Thessalonians, we'll continue in one of the most significant passages of the, of the uh, Greek New Testament, and that is the last part of Acts 17, Paul at Athens. Uh, and there's a, one of his most significant uh, sermons uh, at Mars Hill, the Areopagus, and there's a lot of I- illustrative material there because it teaches us again how Paul taught and how he reasoned from the Scriptures. And this gives us, again, tremendous evidence on how the Scriptures should be handled. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that there's no guarantee or promise that we're going to live in a, in a culture that responds positive to, positively to us. Uh, for much of our history in this country, we have had a positive response to the gospel and a positive response to Christians. But the opposition mounts. And as the opposition mounts, we need to take courage from these in the first century who faced much more severe opposition and who maintained the course, stayed the course, treated the, those in opposition uh, with grace and proclaimed the gospel, never backing down, but never making their, their own attitude or their own errors the issue. It was always the cross, the stumbling block of the cross. Father, we pray that you would give us great courage as believers to stand for the truth of your word and uh, proclaim it not only with our lips but also with our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.